Ryan Stanton here with ASEP Frontline, joined today at the Advanced Pediatric Emergency Medicine Assembly here in Orlando, Florida with Dr. Sean Fox uh, from Carolinas Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, fantastic conversations and talks, and depending on publication dates, you may have he- heard his uh, cameo uh, when we were uh, talking earlier uh, on, our, on our recordings. And um, But what we want to talk about today is going to be uh, some of the considerations and important stuff on, on trauma in children. And there's a lot of things I think that we become numb to in emergency medicine. A lot of the bad things that we see, especially among adults, um, pediatrics, there's more things that tend to uh, shake us a little bit. And one of the most difficult things that we deal with, I think, at least for me personally, is significant traumatic events with children. Um, we see children, we expect, of course, broken bones and things like that. We expect the regular illnesses, but we do not expect uh, potentially life-threatening uh, traumatic events, and it can be very difficult. And, you know, it's, it's mentioned to folks who ask me how I deal with everything. It's like, you know, really the only thing that will silence an emergency department for the rest of the shift is a significant life-threatening event um, in pediatrics. And so, um, you know, we want to talk about that a little bit. First, let's start off uh, getting a little information from you um, about you and then uh, talk to us, uh, start talking to us about um, traumatic events, these significant traumatic events in children. Well, uh, thank you again for inviting me uh, to not be cameoing this time. Um, love uh, sitting down and, and talking about um, the care of kids. And I've uh, been doing this job for um, going on 15 years, I guess, and uh, trained in uh, Balmer, Maryland, Balmer, uh, at um, University of Maryland, uh, did a combined residency of emergency medicine and pediatrics, and I have enjoyed the um, benefit of being able to continue to take care of both adults and children and spend half my clinical life in the adult department and half my clinical life in the pediatric side in um, in Carolina's Medical Center. Uh, so we're level one trauma for both adults and children. And, and I would agree with uh, what you just said that, um, you know, you can have a, a significantly traumatized adult and because our trauma protocols require it, we have a whole bunch of people there. But there's not extra, extra people. There's just the bare minimum number of, you know, we've got the trauma surgeons in our trauma team and the other EM providers. And, but when there's a kid involved, now I've got, like, every nurse in the department. I've got every um, custodian in the department. I've got cafeteria workers. I've got everybody in the hospital is in that room and it's 900 degrees, which is sometimes good because by the way, hypothermia is a real problem in kids. So maybe we just add extra body warmth and make this, uh, not a problem, but yes, the, the levels of intensity because it is a child, um, do ratchet up considerably. Um, and then unfortunately that can influence our, our um, processes, right? Well, um, fortunately, most of us have been trained really well that we know how to kind of segregate those two aspects of our, our lives and proceed in our um, kind of orderly fashion of uh, evaluation of trauma. With kids, sometimes we can't always go in that order, though, because uh, just like you're going to you know, see a child with ear pain, you can't jump right in their ear, right? You can't you know, go right to the painful part. 
Um, and when we're doing our normal primary and secondary survey in children, sometimes if the kid is really, you know, with it and, and uh, you know, probably appropriately screaming at us, sometimes we do have to change our process a little bit, which can be potentially hazardous if we don't keep that in mind. Um, I have the benefit of uh, being able to be still regimented because I have someone else who's really helping the patient, and that is my child life services. We have um, f uh, just phenomenal child life team, and um, I know it's said often, and I would iterate it again. I think we need adult life specialists that come in and like kind of help distract our adults, but um, my child life team is able to come in and allow me to stay mindful of my orderly primary and secondary surveys because they're paying attention to the, the child's needs emotionally. And they're able to kind of also remind me, hey, by the way, the kid does have an open femur fracture, Dr. Fox, and has not gotten any pain medicine yet. That seems to be substandard. And, and yes, we usually have a nice conversation about that. And, and I um, quickly change uh, my practice and, and give the kid some pain medicine. So having the child life services, I think, is invaluable because it does alleviate um, some of the onus for me to um, change my processes because I don't want to make the kid have additional harm emotionally. They're there helping to support the kid emotionally and then also remind me of things I might be missing. Um, and unfortunately, not everybody has child life services. I understand that. So I think we do need to be mindful that with kids, it isn't just the physical ailments that are going to be causing them to be in a lot of pain. Their, their, their mother or father was just in the car accident with them. They don't know where these people are. They certainly don't know who you are. And there's nothing about this environment right now that is appealing to them. And when it's a 14-year-old, maybe you can, you know, rationalize with them. Although my 14-year-old doesn't always rationalize really well. But when it's a four-year-old, forget about it. Like, you're not going to, you know, be able to rationalize, you know, mommy's around the corner. Like, that, none of that's going to work. So having other people that just dedicate themselves to keeping the child calm is going to be super helpful. And, you know, pediatric trauma is the leading cause across, actually, trauma, um, accidental injury is the all-cause mortality winner from age one until like 45. Mm -hmm. So without a doubt, this is why we have job security and we need to be very comfortable taking care of all the age groups um, from, you know, the, the toddler up to the teenager to the geriatric patient and know all the different um, changes that we have to account for because of their different anatomy and physiology that go along with those age changes. So let's talk about, you mentioned, um, you know, our child life experts and, you know, just basically in, engaging the child, understanding that their ability to process what's going on, um, you know, they, they're going to, of course, revert back to very, um, you know, to very primitive type reactions of, of protecting themselves, wanting to get with people that they know, that they're familiar with, that they trust, that they care about, they want to be with them, they don't want to be in that situation, they don't want to be restrained, they don't want painful things to happen to them, even though they've already had, you know, something painful. They don't understand, they're not going to understand that part. So that's clearly, we need to, you know, a consideration with especially our younger pediatrics is 
um, is that they're going to have a challenge processing all of these things that are happening to them. But what are some of the other um, considerations we need to make um, in these situations? I mean, your, your, your talk is damage control, resuscitation, uh, considerations for that severely traumatized child. And we don't want to, you know, march down all the pathways of, you know, you have a this child has a splenic laceration, so here's everything we're going to do. But, you know, there's a lot of more global umbrella view um, of pediatric trauma, things we need to consider, things we need to look at, um, especially if you're in that community situation where you may be seeing 10, 20, 25% um, total pediatric volume um, within your facility. You're not. It's going to be rare and far between that you're going to see a significant severely uh, multi-system pediatric trauma um, and so it's you know something that you know you almost have to restart a restart an old cold engine um, at that point when you have that come in there and, and it's going to be a little bit rusty it's going to run a little bit rough um, so you know what are some of the considerations we need to keep in mind when that person comes into our department especially for that community-based doctor who may not see it on a daily basis um, yeah great uh, great question. Uh, ideally, I would say that um, conversations with your local trauma center are had well in advance of this child arriving and deciding between um, yourselves and, and your, your colleagues in your department and the referring or the referral centers that you send patients to, um, how these kids uh, should be evaluated at first. And the reason I say it that way is we all are gonna do our A, Bs and Cs and Ds and Es and whatever alphabet it gets you to. And we're gonna do our primary and secondary survey. Um, but a lot of the times, if I'm in the middle of um, the you know Western North Carolina and it's gonna be, uh, you know, I gotta get the helicopter to come get me and I've gotta get, you know, that's gonna be an hour f flight and is the best strategy getting definitive answers in the you know or getting the helicopter to me to get the kid out of there and not imaging and essentially just stabilizing and getting them out of your your department so that's going to be predicated on where you're at that's going to be predicated on your your local resources and also your um, centers that you refer your your trauma patients to i know that in our um, our catchment area our general um, recommendation is that um, what we have found is when kids get CT scans um, of their anything other than their head. So head CTs have a lot of value, I think, because that's going to definitely potentially change. So, so if someone comes in and has a head injury um, and we get a scan of their head before they come to the, hot, to the referral center, that can change management if you have the ability to do so. But the ones that were getting abdominal CT scans and chest CTs and a lot of extra um, radiographic imaging often just delayed their transport to us. And the number of times we would get them and then not have access to those images anyway, and then we just re-radiated re them, it just was never a very fruitful endeavor for anybody. It was very frustrating. And... Not benefiting, not benefiting the kid at all. So, I think having an honest conversation with your trauma centers and say, "Here are our, our current uh, resources. If we get this kid and he or she looks 
this way, what would your preference be? And if their answer is, um, you know, give us a call and we'll sort out like what imaging you can do versus don't give us a call until the patient's actually packaged and already on their way and let us know they're coming. And it'll be dependent upon what their resources are as well. Now, getting past that, I do think we need to realize, I mentioned it before, that kids have different anatomy and different physiology, and that evolves over time, and it has impact on how we evaluate kids. The, um, without a doubt, the, the leading cause of morbidity and mortality in pediatric trauma patients is head injury. Um, that's not a surprise. Uh, the management of head injury actually isn't very disparate based on their age. If you got an epidural, you got to get the blood out. So it's really not a big difference between ages. Um, and the one thing we do know with head injury specifically is if they have any episodes of hypotension, that portends poorly. And that's also across age groups as well. So we would like to avoid hypotension in those patients. Um, so that's the number one cause. And many times they, they've suffered an irreversible amount of injury before they even get to us. But what we want to do is make sure we don't accentuate any other, any secondary injury. So that hypotension, preventing hypotension is going to be important, making sure that um, you're volume resuscitating them appropriately so they maintain their mean arterial pressure. And if we have to intubate them, being mindful that Again, any subsequent hypotension is going to have a potentially negative impact on this child. So being um, uh, mindful and preloading them with lots of fluids, um, there's never been any great evidence for, uh, you know, empiric uh, uh, lidocaine. But if you've got the time, fine. If you don't have the time, don't frazzle your nursing staff with trying to figure that one out right now. Just make sure... You, in my practice in kids, I'm generally going to use um, rocuronium. Now, I know my neurosurgeons get a little miffed at me about that, um, and they would prefer succinylcholine. We whole other talk, but um, succinylcholine uh, certainly has its downsides in that we um, actually have a greater propensity to have hypoxia associated with it, um, and I can't have this person become hypoxic either. Um, but good airway management is going to be in, in probably the most important thing in making sure they don't become hypotensive with brain injury and getting them to a neurosurgeon. Um, the other things, you know, that probably warrant the, um, the next most uh, consideration, interestingly, thoracic trauma is the second leading cause of morbidity and mortality in um in pediatric trauma it seems odd because you think well their belly is you know probably where a lot of them are getting injured um but while they you might see a, a fair number of abdominal injuries they don't have they, they they don't have a lot of mortality from that um they are generally really resilient uh splenic lax liver lax you know we've all seen pretty substantial um internal organ injury in kids, and they bounce back for them pretty well. Not saying they're not of significant consequence, but the number two leading cause of death in trauma is actually thoracic trauma. 
So it seems that then my next statement should be followed, that follows would be make sure you scan their chest. Um, but I'm going to say the opposite because we just need to think about what problems kids have in their chest that cause them the morbidity and mortality. And the, the number one thing is going to be pulmonary contusion. I don't need a CT scan to define that. And in fact, um, your chest X-ray we've shown is a better screening tool for pulmonary contusion. It's not more um, sensitive. No, in fact, it's less sensitive. Well, then how could it be a better screening tool? It's better screening because if I get a CT scan on a child, I'm able to discern that they have pulmonary contusion earlier, but it's not clinically relevant. So then I add a, a diagnosis to my line uh, on the chart, um, but it doesn't change my management. So studies have been done that looked at CT scans of children's chests. What does it do? It adds diagnoses, but it doesn't change management. Chest x-ray changes management. Chest ultrasonography changes management. So I focus more on those. If I've got a child, and again, anatomy and physiology are going to be significantly different in, in adults, what is the difference in the child's chest that we need to be uh, cognizant of while we're evaluating them? The ribs are, are very compliant, right? They have a very flexible chest. Um, unlike old people like me, where we're going to just break ribs, they don't, which is, seems like that's a good thing. They're not going to have rib fractures. Well, the problem of that is, is they don't have anything that dissipates the force that's impacted on their chest. So a, a chest impact is more directly transmitted into their lung parenchyma. So now they've got bruising of the lung, they've got hemorrhage in there, their alveoli get all filled up with not only blood and snot, but now we have got VQ mismatch, now we've got hypoxemia, so, and we've got increased worker breathing. That chest wall being super compliant also doesn't help them at all when they inspire and expire. They actually have to work harder than you and I do, which means a greater proportion of their cardiac output goes to breathing. The work of breathing, greater than 30% of their cardiac output, when they're healthy, when they're happy and chilling, goes to their work of breathing. And now they're injured. Now their increased work of breathing is greater. Now their cardiac output delivered to their work of breathing is greater. And oh, by the way, another physiologic thing that we can't forget, they have an engine that just runs at red line all the time, again, when they're healthy. So you and I are consuming about 2 mLs per kilo per minute of oxygen right now. Um, a kid that was sitting here watching SpongeBob SquarePants would be consuming greater than four. So they're doing it more than twice we are. And then they get ramped up. They get you know, a big bolus of endorphins because they're scared, anxious, and injured. And now they're consuming oxygen even faster. Okay, well, they're breathing fast, so they should be fine except for the fact that anatomy does matter again, they have smaller airways, right? They have a smaller length of their main bronchus and bronchial tree. It's smaller in diameter, and therefore the volume is less. Therefore, they have less dead space. It's the dead space that you and I use to fill up with 100% FiO2 to give them a reserve, a reservoir to draw from when we're getting ready to intubate them, right? And they have a smaller reservoir. They've got a smaller, smaller reservoir. They're running on red, 
their metabolic rate is just chomping through all the oxygen that they have, and then you make them apneic, they'll just chew up all the oxygen in that reservoir and they'll desaturate really rapidly. So that's a, an anatomy and physiology thing that we cannot overlook in that traumatized child when we're speaking about chest trauma. Now their work of breathing that is being stressed by their pulmonary contusion is, and now they've got VQ mismatch from their pulmonary contusion, all this is gonna just crescendo with that high metabolic rate, that already high consumption of oxygen, and they'll desaturate really quickly. Your chest CT is not gonna tell you that that's going on. Your chest CT is not gonna say, this kid is in need of advanced airway maneuvers or intubation. Um, and in fact, while he's in CT getting his chest scanned, who knows what's going on? Like things could be certainly progressing. Your chest X-ray, what we see when it's studied and you compare a patient that had an abnormal chest X-ray um, versus a patient that had a normal chest X-ray but a CT scan that showed pulmonary contusion. So the kid's X-ray screened negative, but the chest CT said, no, he does have pulmonary contusion. What we found is that the patient that had the X-ray abnormality had greater ICU days, greater length of stay, greater ventilator days, greater morbidity and mortality. The patient that had the CT-only pulmonary contusion had none of that. So I can get the study, and I can show pulmonary contusion better. I can write it as a diagnosis on the bottom line of my chart more readily, but I'm not going to go back to the patient and say, oh, you've got pulmonary contusion on your CT scan. I should intubate you now. No, I'm going to go back to him, and I'm going to look at him and see what his work of breathing is, what it, is our management going to be based on is going to be his clinical appearance. CT scan is not going to give me that. So for the number one cause of morbidity in the second leading cause of morbidity overall, chest trauma, pulmonary contusion, the CT scan gives me nothing except detecting it earlier. But it doesn't help me clinically. So our x-ray is better in that realm. So what do I do if my x-ray is negative and the kid starts having increased work of breathing and hypoxia? Well, I can assume he probably has pulmonary contusion. I can get another x-ray. We know it evolves over time. Um, or I could treat him symptomatically anyway. So that, that bit of information doesn't equal a CT scan needing. Um, other thoracic injuries that, you know, what else can we injure in our chest that we uh, would worry about? Well, certainly our heart. I don't need a CT scan for that. That's, that's my bedside ultrasound and my ECG if I'm worried about um, cardiac contusion. But I'm worried about tamponade. I'm certainly not going to get a CT scan, hopefully. Um, so ultrasound is going to be the answer for that. Pneumothorax is probably the big one. And we've all seen the pneumothorax that we see on the CT scan that we don't see on the X-ray. Um, but we also know that the best study to look for pneumothoraces is our bedside ultrasound. Um, and in, in my shop, uh, I work with some amazing um, traumatologists and surgeons, and I think we work really well together. And they actually have started over the last couple of years looking towards us to s determine bed based on bedside ultrasound whether someone has a pneumothorax and not waiting for the bedside x-ray, which lies to us so often with that, particularly in that supine position. Um, so I don't need a CT scan for that. And, and in fact, if we got a CT scan 
and the x-ray didn't show the pneumothorax, what do we do with those kids if they have a small pneumothorax anyway? Same thing we do with adults that have a small pneumothorax. We leave them be. We watch them, and, you know, that's about it. So it's not like we're going to go put a chest tube in them. Um, particularly, here's interesting. So what's the complication rate of putting chest tubes in adults? It's like it's 21% complication rate. Um, and that's when I can put my finger through their... Um, intercostal space. I know I'm not in, you know, below their diaphragm. I know I'm pushing up against, you know, soft, squishy lung. It gives me nice, warm, fuzzy feelings knowing that I'm right where I'm supposed to be. Um, I can, you know, direct that tube where I want it to go. Um, I can't fit my fat finger between, uh, you know, six-year-old's intercostal space. It's not going to go in there. Uh, so the technique for putting the chest tube in a, in a young kid is different. And, um, complication rates higher. So if I, I'm not gonna empirically just put a, a chest tube in a child anyway. And most kids very rarely need emergent thoracostomy. That's usually not something new where, as in the adults they come in and we do that just based on exam many times. Ch kids don't generally need that. So that's something good to know. I don't, you know, my chest x-ray again and my ultrasound are my main tools for my chest, right? Um, well, hold on, what about that aorta? That's, that's, that's really why we scan people's chests, right? That aorta. I'm worried about um, the traumatic thoracic aortic injury. All of uh, all those patients that are in, you know, head-on MVCs, um, rapid deceleration. Well, remember, anatomy and physiology matter. Children's mediastinum is very mobile, um, which is great. It actually... Uh, is not tethered by the ligamentous arteriosus uh, that has become fibrous in us old people. The young child, their ligamentous arteriosus is still very um, elastic and their mediastinum very mobile. That has some pros. The main pro is that in a rapid deceleration, they're not going to rip apart their aortic arch because of a fibrous ligamentous arteriosus. Um, it does have some consequences that we should be aware of that very mobile mediastinum is more directly impacted by interthoracic pressure. So what would I do to make someone's interthoracic pressure really high? Oh, you know, bag them too much. I can easily cause, you know, the, the child's interthoracic pressure to make it so that they have no preload. Um, because that pressure gets directly related to their right atrium, and they'll just drop their preload. Um, so we have to be mindful of that. But with respect to injuring their aorta, it's, it's nice to know that the young kids, they don't injure the aortas. And if you look in the trauma registry, all, there's actually a lot of literature about pediatric thoracic, uh, trauma, traumatic thoracic aortic uh, dissections because surgeons have to figure out how to manage them. So there's a lot of literature about it. And um, when you summarize what is known, the summary essentially boils down to it's exceedingly rare in kids. And when it occurs, it's usually not, it's usually not occurring in a medical mystery. You're not looking at the kid who looks great going, ooh, but he was in a rapid decelerating you know, mechanism. I know he's running around the room right now, but we should probably scan his chest because he could have injured his aorta just based on mechanism. That's not, those, that's not these children. These children are come in polytrauma from top to bottom. They're not the ones that you're hemming and hawing about what we should CT scan. You're like, 
I think we should CT his toe. His toe looks a little funny too. Like let's get CTs of his from his hair to the top of his toe. Um, these patients have multiple long bone um, injuries. They come in and their GCS is significantly altered. Massive trauma patients. So they're not medical mysteries. They're also not kids. What do I mean by that? The youngest one was 13. So they're essentially adult anatomy now, right? And, and that's what you need. You need that ligamentous arteriosus to be rigid and to be fibrous. And the youngest one that survived to the emergency department. So I can't tell you if there's someone that was eight and then died in the field, but the trauma registry information that we have has the youngest trauma traumatic aortic injury being a 13-year-old. So if you're dealing with an eight-year-old, six-year-old, four-year-old, I'm not scanning their seat. I'm not getting a CT scan of their chest on the just mechanistic concern, right? Now I am going to get a chest X-ray. I've already talked about my my love affair the, with the chest X-ray and the um, evaluation of thoracic trauma, and I'm going to scrutinize their chest X-ray just like we should for all of our patients that we're getting traumatic uh, chest imaging on. We're going to look at the you know. Uh, aortic knob, make sure it's got a nice um, aortic window. We're going to make sure there's not a um, pleural cap on that left side. We're going to make sure there's not a um, pleural effusion on the left side. We're going to make sure that the uh, paratracheal stripe is not being um, deviated. We're going to make sure that uh, right, or I'm sorry, the left bronchus isn't being pushed down. Um, and if we see any of those signs, then that's a different story. Now we need to image the kid's chest. Um, but do know that it you should not just have a reflex of, well, let's, let's get a CT of the chest. Um, and the number of times that we see patients that, well, we were scanning his head and we were scanning his neck and we were scanning his abdomen, so we just connected the dots and we scanned his chest too. Um, and it was, it's not necessary. So be mindful. And, and we've actually removed the ability to order a pan, quote unquote, pan scan or trauma scan that includes head, neck, chest, abdomen, and pelvis, we've removed that as a, 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 a click box. You have to say, I want a head, I want a neck, I want a chest, I want an abdomen and pelvis. And, and doing so has actually reduced the number of CT scans of the chest that we get because then you have to tell me, why do you want that? What is, what is your rationalization? And if you can tell me, my, my rationalization is, I'm worried about thoracic um, aortic injury, okay, we can have a talk about that but you can't just ubiquitously order it. Um, and that would be the one thing that I think we could probably, you know, across the board do better is helping minimize unnecessary radiation to the kid's chest. Um, head, I have a very low threshold. I mean, we've got PCARN rules, certainly for minor head injury, but major, major head injury, there's, there's no way around it. You've got to get a picture of the kid's bean. Um, neck injury, there's some good evidence for limited CT imaging. So just looking, you know, at the very young kids, their fulcrum is higher, so they're gonna more likely injure, you know, C1, 2, and 3. So can I avoid imaging C5, 6, and 7 and just do the top? There's some decent evidence for that. I think you have to have a coordinated approach, though, with your radiology services and your trauma services. Um, so that's not as easily applied across the board. Hey, just only scan the top of the kid's neck. Um, and that also changes drastically with age. As the kid gets older, the, the mechanisms matter more and their injury goes from the top all, you know, all the way down to the bottom where we see um, you know, the same things occur with our adults. Um, 
I could just keep going on and on about this, though. That's fantastic information. I mean, we got the number uh, number one, number two uh, major causes of morbidity and mortality and pediatric uh, trauma, actually, you know, pe trauma in general, uh, and for injuries. And that's, you know, that's important things to consider. And I think that's one thing that I've loved about pediatrics is that embracing that only doing the stuff we need to do and then understanding why we do or don't need it. I mean, we've gotten so much into the reflex over the last 15 to 20 years with adult traumas. You know, if they if they did anything other than roll out of bed, we're scanning them from stem to stern. And, you know, pediatrics there is, you know, I think it's it's gotten more purchased, that whole uh, more selective because we are more cognizant of, of their radiation dosing, exposure, and unnecessary procedures. And then I would agree. I do think, you know, um, we still have to be mindful. And I, I just, you know... I'm always fearful of being on a pendulum that's swinging too far one way. Um, and, you know, I like to think that uh, it, it, when we think about pediatric minor head injury, it's a, it's a great example. Um, and there are times when uh, someone can tell me, hey, the, the kid is PCAR negative, and therefore I don't think we need to scan them. And I'll say, that's great. You know, um, when I started, this kid would have had like two CTs by now. So it's good that we're not doing that. But then I go see him and I'm like, you know, there's just something different. And the story is a little bit more concerning than P. Carn really can wrap its, you know, tentacles around. And oh, by the way, when I talked to mom and dad and I described to them that, hey, I think we can watch you for four hours. I then follow with the question of, hey, Dad, after four hours, if your kid looks fine, I'm going to send you home. Are you going to be okay with that? And Dad quickly follows with, go jump in a river. No, I'm going to still want a CT scan of his head. Um, you know, I, I do think we need to be cognizant that um, just because I think it's the best strategy doesn't mean it's a, a ubiquitous strategy. And um, we can tailor things to individuals. And that's I would rather approach every patient with the knowledge of... Um, what we're, what we're worried about, whether I am worried about it um, remotely or not, and then try to tailor our guidelines that we have for the individual. Guidelines are great. They are based on, you know, hopefully thousands of patient encounters and hopefully look at kind of the normal distribution, best idea, best strategy for the best you know the best fit in the greatest population but individual patients are still individuals and we still need to cipher out how does this person fit into this population maybe they don't and that's where we can get into trouble is if we don't do that last part of our own clinical analysis this patient actually doesn't fit in that population well and, and therefore we're not going to do that plan we're going to have to come up with another one but i do think when we compare our strategies to mitigate unnecessary radiation on kids versus that on adults, we, it's hands down, kids are winning without a doubt. Um, partially because adults are challenging in their own ways, right? They come with a lot of other comorbidities that really throw everything out the window. I'm like, oh, he's, he's on anticoagulation, great. All right, well, he's gonna get a bunch of scans. Um, oh, he's got liver failure, great, he's already, 
It's just like being on anticoagulation, he's going to get a bunch of scans. So a lot of the problems with trying to minimize that uh, unnecessary radiation in adults is, is much more challenging. We also have to think about, well, okay, well, what is the purpose of minimizing radiation? Um, and how does that then affect those different populations? Is the adult the same as the child? No, obviously not. The, so what do we know about medical radiation? Medical radiation is all based on the lifespan studies that were um, predicated on the Hiroshima atomic bomb. And it was a uh, consortium of American and Japanese scientists that got together to figure out, all right, what is the true impact of radiation. Now they are looking at huge, huge doses of radiation, but they also looked at really tiny doses, doses that we um, expose people to all the time. So medical dose radiation, so zero to 100 millisieverts, they looked at as well as the giant, huge, you know, environmental uh, disaster radiation levels. And what they found is at, at 10 millisieverts, you increase your lifetime attributable risk of developing cancer by 0.1 percent. All right. Well, what's what's 0.1 percent to me? You know, like, how does that like what is that equivalent to? It doesn't really. I don't under, I can't put my arms around 0.1 percent of cancer um, risk, particularly when your baseline lifetime attributable risk of developing cancer is like 40 percent. So I go from. You mean to tell me you're going to give me 10 millisieverts? And 10 millisieverts is, um, so your chest CT is about eight. Uh, so I gave you a chest CT. I didn't even give you a full 10 millisieverts yet, but let's just round it up and say I, gave, I increased your risk, your lifetime attributable risk of developing cancer by 0.1%. So you went from 40 to 40.1. Great. Like, who cares? Like, scan everything. Well, pump the brakes. Not quite. Not, not quite. Because 0.1% um, of a population is enormous. Right, so it's we have to think about how that equivalent, how that is um, kind of stretched out across a population, not just an individual. And oh, by the way, kids do have different anatomy and physiology. So, with respect to radiation, they have all of those cells doing that funny thing that we learned about that included anaphase and telophase and whatever, you know, that whole mitotic dance. And so they're unwrapping their DNA. They're exposing it more often than you and I do because they're growing. So they have all these cells that are rapidly growing and dividing and changing and helping them become um, bigger and stronger. But that means they're exposing their DNA more often. So when that radiation comes, it's vulnerable. So they have a greater chance of having a proto-oncogene turn on into an oncogene. And now they have a longer time for that proto-oncogene that turned onto an oncogene to go on and develop into cancer because they're younger. So if, you know, I got uh, radiated when I'm, you know, 42 and go on and develop prostate cancer when I'm 82, okay, big deal. But when, you know, if my son got radiated when he was eight and then develops, a, you know, a young adult cancer, that's a big deal. Also, not only do they have a longer time for that proto-oncogene to go on and change into an oncogene and develop into cancer and grow bigger, they also have a longer time to accrue more radiation and have more direct hits onto that DNA. 
So kids are more radio sensitive. So that 0.1% is actually, we don't know it specifically for kids. That's kind of uh, the population, but everyone is the sm smarter people than me say it's higher in kids. We just don't know what it is. So it's meaningful that we try to reduce that exposure to radiation. And I think because of that, um, we see um, processes in place more readily aimed at kids than they are in adults. So adults are more complicated because of their comorbidities. And in the end, we're like, eh, he's 40, who cares? Well, that's what, you know, my patient population, we got those 80, 90-year-olds, like, you know, scan, scan away, um, you know, because they're more likely of having something going on. But also, you're right, you're absolutely right, that that time for that uh, radiation exposure to do something to cells that are actually receptive to damage. You know, when you're 80 to 90 years old, other than your gut, there's not really much turning over. Um, you know, as far as a kid, everything's everything's growing and everything's developing. So uh, great conversation here with uh, Dr. Sean Fox uh, out of Carolina's Medical Center, Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, if people want more information, want to talk more trauma, because you know, pediatric trauma is one of those things that I mean, we could honestly do an entire conference just on uh, pediatric trauma and all the nuances and all the little things we've hit on, you know, a couple of big, big couple of uh, things that are going to risk your uh, pediatric trauma patient. How can folks get in touch with uh, you? Um, you can uh, follow me on Twitter. At, that's at PDM Morsels. So that's P-E-D-E-M and then M-O-R-S-L-E-S. Uh, you can also um, uh, contact me um, at uh, PDM Morsels Fox. So just spell out PDM Morsels and then put an FOX on the end of it at gmail.com. And uh, I'm more than happy to uh, banter about more uh, with whatever questions you have. And actually talk about that uh, a little bit more, the PED, uh, PDM Morsels, uh, because actually I was floating through a bunch of those things, great opportunities. Um, uh, you mentioned uh, morsels as the reference, uh, rather than the pearls uh, that we're looking for. I mean that 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 we're typically referred to, um, you know, a little bit to bite on, a little bit to chew on, but not quite a whole meal, and and not just a little bit of, you know, just a bullet or anything. Talk to us about your that uh, the resource, that information that you provide on PDM morsel. The uh, PDM morsels have been in their current uh, standing uh, since 2010. I started writing them, uh, essentially uh, spurred on by my program director, Amal Matu, back in the day. And um, they were originally casted as part of the University of Maryland uh, Pearls. And then when I moved on and um, went down to Carolinas, I kind of re-sculpted them and uh, write the, the morsels. They come out weekly every Friday. Um, always looking for ideas, so if you have ideas or questions, I try to make them clinically relevant and um, concise enough that if you have a real question in the, in the heat of the battle, you can quickly open that up, digest it, and um, hopefully make uh, heads or tails of the scenario. Uh, but you, you can go to the website, pdmmorsels.com, and uh, you can access uh, all of them from the past. There's over 300 and some of them some odd morsels out there. I like morsels, they're tastier. If you chew on a pearl, it isn't real tasty. But a, you know, a morsel of chocolate sounds delicious. All right, so pdmmorsel.com, morsels, or we got more than one, or? Morsels, pdmmorsels.com. Uh, I've got it actually on my phone pulled up. I was scrolling through yesterday. Um, 
After you, after you sent me the, the reference site, so it was great information, um, you know, little in, little information tidbits and things you can read. It's actually designed very well for emergency physicians uh, with our little ADD and not wanting to read the entire articles, uh, the really long stuff. We want to get some really quick information, get us some motivation to look into things. So, uh, Dr. Fox, thank you so much, and I appreciate your time. And uh, as for me, you can contact me, youreverydaymedicine at gmail.com. That's youreverydaymedicine at gmail.com, at everydaymed on Twitter, and make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stan, and this has been some ASAP Frontline. Mm-hmm.